In 2014, Renieto Lodge hit publish on her blog post, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. The post went viral, resonated with folks around the globe, and resulted in a hit book exploring the dominant power structures around race. This is Ideas at the House. I'm Edwina Throsby, and today on the podcast, Rennie Edo Lodge calls out these systems of power. She's talking with writer Benjamin Law. Our guest today is an award-winning London-based journalist, columnist and writer. Before she was a full-time writer, she was also a blogger and an activist. She's written for The New York Times, The Guardian, The Independent and Dazed and Confused, amongst many others, and is consistently singled out as one of the most promising and important voices of her generation. Her first book is arguably the most provocatively titled book of 2017, but it's also one of the most nuanced, complex and thoughtful investigations into race and race relations you'll read in any year. It's called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Marlon James calls it a book that was begging to be written, and The Observer declared it as a wake-up call to a nation in denial. And I would probably include that uh, Australia applies to that assessment as well. Uh, Personally, I would call it essential reading. Please join me in welcoming to Antidote and the Sydney Opera House, and indeed Sydney, Australia, Rennie Edo Lodge. Thanks for spending your evening with me, everyone. (laughs) Rennie, before this was a book, it started off as a blog post. Um, So let's rewind back to 2014. You're writing a blog entry titled Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People um, About Race. Tell us about that blog entry and why you wrote it. It was written at a point of burnout. It was not written uh, flippantly. Uh, It wasn't something that I just sort of pulled out... um, of nowhere. It was written because I had tried repeatedly and um, found myself getting nowhere. Actually, no, I was getting somewhere. I was becoming like quite demonised and I was constantly being called divisive for attempting to call attention to structural racism. And what would people say back to you when, when you would call attention to structural racism? Um, you're shutting down debate. Um, you're obsessed with race. Um, you are, you know, you're being unfair. You know, you're being mean. You're being divisive. That's what I was being told repeatedly. Uh, A number of uh, events, some of which I sort of spoke about in the book, um, led me to just withdrawing from that sphere. And and I think that sometimes people think I'm being needlessly provocative with Mm. the title of that blog post that became a book, but there was nothing provocative about it. It I was deadly serious, you know. I wasn't saying anything to get attention. It was very much... I have to withdraw from this conversation now because I'm emotionally exhausted. Did you kind of have mixed feelings about declaring that as well? Because essentially some people might construe it as I'm giving up on this conversation. Mm. How did you see it or how did you frame it? Mixed feelings. Well, I didn't... At no point did I sort of think to myself, how are people going to receive this? Mm. It was just really from the heart. It was very much... uh, I listed the reasons why, um, you know, the willful ignorance, the denial, the ahistorical nature of the conversation amongst white people, um, uh, the absolute lack of context, and mm. that often evolved into, into quite malicious stances. At no point did I worry what people were going to think of me, but the context to me writing that was, you know, I was a recent graduate with no prospects in front of me. So I had literally nothing to lose Mm. um, by (laughs) 
by writing it, I wasn't concerned. I had no mortgage to pay, yeah. <laughs> no job to be concerned about. Um, and so I wasn't concerned about people's responses. There were no mixed feelings. But there was one very strong feeling of not wanting to do this anymore. Mm. And Rennie, after you hit post and it goes out there, uh, it kind of becomes viral. And even though you don't necessarily think about how people are going to respond, what is the response and what is the response from different demographics? Well, I think that the response was very much unexpected. Um, you know, I'm somebody who has been writing on the internet for a long time, you know, and before I was writing on the internet, I had a diary. And so, you know, when you write in that way, you don't always expect people to read it. Mm. So I, <laughs> I pressed post and um, it really did take on a life of its own. Um, I would say it went global and I had... I suppose people who weren't white getting in contact saying, this is really articulating some things that I've been feeling for a very, very long time. Hmm. Did that hearten or was that hearten you that people were identifying with, with you or was that kind of worrying as well? I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it would be right for me to say it's heartening, but, but actually that wasn't the feeling. I don't, hmm. Whenever anybody says to me, I really resonate with what you're saying, it doesn't fill me with joy, actually. It just makes me feel a little bit more dead inside because I'm just like <laughs> no but it's just like it, it reveals to me the global extent of the problem you know mm. being here in Australia and people again telling me well I'm not black British but I resonate with almost uh, with a lot of what you're saying it's like wow th this is inescapable this is an inescapable system of dominance here why would that make me feel happy <laughs> yes <laughs> you know? yes um, um, so and but white people were also responding to me going wow this is really you know this has really changed my perspective on the issue, which mm. I... And, you know, sometimes even thanking me, which, again, I didn't particularly find heartening because I suppose that post wasn't for white people in a way, but, of course, you know, I think with a title like that, it's like a red rag to a bull. You know? <laughs> <laughs> as yeah. soon as you say, no, thank you, everyone's like, what? I need to... You're not going I to need to be to part me. of I this conversation. To... Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just going to read a bit of um, the original post that does appear at the head of your book as well. You republish it in full in the book, but mm. you write, I'm no longer talking to white people about race. I don't have a huge amount of power to change the way the world works, but I can set boundaries. I can halt the entitlement they feel towards me, and I'll start that by stopping the conversation. I'm not talking to white people about race unless I absolutely have to. I'm no longer dealing with people who don't want to hear it, wish to ridicule it, and frankly, don't deserve it. So after you write this post, I guess the obvious question is, what, why, why write a book um, to continue the conversation, essentially? Well, you know, I think that when you write something like that and so many people take it on board and it becomes suddenly your words are being ventriloquized beyond what you could, expected them to, and it mm. sort of becomes a symbol of something. You know, if I didn't write on that phenomenon, somebody else would have, and then I would have been very annoyed. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but also, around the time that I wrote this post, I was also a freelance journalist and an activist attempting mm. to try and, you know, really get a critical perspective on race out in the public sphere. Um, because I was wildly irritated by what I saw and what I continue to see. And, you know, it feels very much the case here in Australia as well, like a very whitewashed, ahistorical, contextless conversation on race in which people who benefit from the current system continue to defend it and uh, uh, say that that's just normal and common sense when actually it's a very ideological position. Mm. And so I needed to 
provide that context. You know, part of the reason why I wrote that initial post was because I was constantly being asked by, you know, editors of newspapers and producers from television programs, oh, can you come on and be our token person to talk about why racism is bad, but we're going to put you alongside somebody who doesn't believe racism exists, so just go to town. <laughs> and I started to just be like, I don't want to be part of that agenda anymore, actually. Mm. Like, if I, I want to contribute something to the public sphere that sets the agenda, rather than being the person who's constantly forced into the corner having to respond to a wildly biased agenda. Mm. And that's, that's really why I wrote the book. When you talk about the Australian context, it's interesting that we're having these conversations, ongoing conversations about history that never seem to be settled. And I think one of the reasons why this book will resonate with Australian readers is how much you focus on, on history, mm. like British history in particular. I think like nearly a third of the book, the first third, is about history. Mm. Why did you want to delve into that so deeply and lay it out for the reader? Because this is the context that we're, we're working in. Uh, this is the context in which we are having conversations about racism. So I think when you lay out the context of, of the black struggle for civil, civil rights in Britain, as well as, you know, some snippets of what Britain's colonial project meant for the world, again, very, res very resonant in Australia, then any modern-day argument that talks about racism against white people is utterly baseless. Mm. So we must have that history in order to discuss race currently, you know, we're talking about a structural power here, we're talking about a dominant ideology first and foremost. That's what we're talking about. We're not necessarily talking about interpersonal nastiness, we're talking about a dominant ideology. And much like, you know, uh, a theorist might critique capitalism, I, feel, I see my role as a writer to challenge that dominant ideology. Mm. Uh, and what I'm really trying to do is call call out those systems of power and how they've manifested themselves in Britain and, and in Britain's project around the world and how, it, and how it continues to be maintained and defended today and what it means for the life chances of people who aren't white British uh, in that context mm. and how actually in Britain white British people benefit from that system of power. How, how it, you know, to me it's yin, yin and yang. So if there is structural discrimination against one group of people, then it it's a political project and it works in the favour of another group of people. So just to clarify, when we're talking about whiteness, um, as much as you're talking about whiteness as in people, as individuals, you're talking about whiteness as, as a power structure similar to how we'd talk about patriarchy or, mm. or neoliberalism. Is that, yeah, is that exactly. fair to say? Yeah, exactly. You know, I think an American critical race theorist might call it white supremacy. Mm. I, decided to, I decided to settle on the word whiteness because I think I was... I started out trying to talk about white supremacy and then like white people even got more upset, you know, so much tiptoeing around their feelings. Um, they would cry and say, well, I'm not a member of the KKK. How, can, how on earth can you bring me into this and whatnot? So, you know, I think that I'm really talking about a, a dominant ideology here, which anyone of any race can buy into. And actually, it's a dominant ideology that we all are raised in and that we will participate in unless we actively choose not to. Hmm. When we talk about black British history, did you always have access to it? No, not at all. I mean, I write about in the book the fact that, you know, when it came to our black history months in school, what we learned about was Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks hmm. and Harriet Tubman, um, and not about uh, civil rights struggles that were happening in Britain. So that leads to this sort of... This sort of understanding that these things are never really a problem in Britain and that there hasn't been a 
the same sort of issues here and that mm. America's just a bad guy over there. Oh, everything's really bad over there, but mm. we're fine and we really work on fair play. And so that, you know, a lot of people get in touch with me and they say, I had no idea. As about things that happened as recently as the 1980s, mm. they had no idea. And to me, that's particularly disturbing because if that history is crowded out by a more whitewashed version, then that that absolutely has an impact on what we understand our present to be. And how did you get access to that history and what surprised and or appalled you about it? Mm. I got access to the, to the history because I think growing up black in and around London, you hear anecdotally a lot of verbal histories about what happened, particularly in the 80s. And so I knew that these things happened, even if they weren't in my history books. So because I had a maybe a basic understanding of what might be ha what, what would happen in like London's race riots in the 1980s. Mm. Um, I knew where to start. And so I went to the British Library in King's Cross and I just did the research. Uh, in South London, in Brixton, there's also a newly built building, the Black Cultural Archives, which has a huge wealth of archive material, uh, many of which goes over that, and a lot of um, recorded interviews with people who were there at the time. So that's really where I started. Mm. I also read... Um, books by uh, black British historians. Um, there's one really brilliant self-taught black British historian called um, Stephen Bourne, um, who has written so many brilliant books, sadly under-celebrated, but brilliant books um, about black people's role in building Britain. And so that's really where I started. Mm. And to me, I, sometimes like when I was doing the research for the book, I was like, am I really doing anything or helping anything by putting this in the book? You know, this information is already out there. But I think actually sometimes it's about repackaging things in order to bring it to a new audience. Mm. And when you have readers, and I'm especially thinking of black British readers as well, come up to you and say, I didn't know that, mm. what do they most commonly bring up in terms of the history you lay out? Gosh, I mean, so there was Dr. Harold Moody living in South East London, who perhaps is widely regarded as Britain's Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about him until I started properly doing this research, and a lot of people say that as well. Um, and, and honestly, I think it denies black and rich people a context for the country they grew up in. But then also I had tell people, I have people talk, talking to me about you know, World Wars I and II and how black and Asian people in particular, who at the time, whose countries were colonized by Britain, mm. you know, so uh, very much drafted into this war. Um, and there's lots of talk about how people didn't really know the extent of that contribution as well. Mm. And I think that really gives a new spin on any white British nationalist who tells people like me to go home or not making any contribution to the country. It, it puts a particularly new sp spin and it makes those comments, exposes them for the malice that they are. Just one last question on the history of things that you write about in the book. Um, You've got this enormity, this reservoir of information and knowledge that you've gained over years in studying black history. Mm. What are your prerequisites for what you include and what you don't include in the book? Oh, yeah, that was a difficult one. Well, I think that what I really wanted to do, it was a whistle-stop tour, that first chapter. <laughs> Let's call it that. A whistle-stop tour. I wanted to contextualise things, but at the same time, I'm not a historian. And so, you know, there'll be tangents interesting tangents that I wanted to go off mm. on, but I knew that what I was really doing was uh, setting out a context in order to make my modern-day political arguments. And so there were some things that, I'd, that I had to leave out, but, and that, they, would, they would 
difficult decisions to make. I don't think I had a particular criteria, though. Mm. As we kind of uh, re-examine history and look at it through different lenses, I mean, this is kind of the international conversation in a way at the moment. We've got a situation in Charlottesville which started as a debate about Confederate statues. Mm. Um, here in Australia, even uh, Stan Grant looking at a, a statue of Captain Cook and saying that plaque is inappropriate and should be changed had him being labelled as equivalent to the Taliban tearing down historical monuments. I mean, how do we even start having this discussion about history without it being, like, insane, essentially? Mm. I think that white people are particularly awful at um, understanding the, that history um, from a non... From outside of, the, of that narrow lens. Mm. Um, so or I understanding think, it as white history. Well, yeah, as white history, as the history of white conquerors. Um, mm. And so they start, like, externalising it. No, that's everything, something we should all be proud of. But let's call a spade a spade. The Confederate flag was in defence of slavery. Mm. So, like, if you're waving it, it's a pro-slavery flag. So if I see somebody walking around with a Confederate flag, I'm like, oh, that person's pro-slavery. Like, to me, it's as simple as that, you know. It's, mm. And... Um, I, I'm shocked by that denial, the denial around that, because that's something that is objectively true. That's what that civil war in the States was about, right? Mm. The South wanted to keep slavery, if I, unless I'm wrong here, you know? <laughs> and I think here in Australia, that conversation, you know, I heard some politicians talking about, well, you know, this is an attempt to edit history. Um, but surely a statue that says that, Captain James Cook discovered Australia. That is an edit. Yes. You know? <laughs> that is an edit in itself. And mm. I'm... So I think that... I think that, you know... I think that white people have been so conditioned to believe that their perspective on this is objective... And neutral. That they, that they, and neutral, that they can't quite comprehend that it is an ideological position. Mm. And what I'm really trying to do in this book is call out that ideology, call it for what it is. And I think that if you're interested in being critical about the world around you, then you should be able to assess the evidence and know when ideology is ideology. Mm. When I was reading this book, uh, Rennie, one of the things I tend to do when I have an aha moment uh, when I read a book is to, is to dog ear it at the bottom, and by the end of reading this book, my book kind of looks like origami now. Uh, but uh, <laughs> there is this section in the book that I, find, that I found immensely useful. You know, one of those things where an author explains something, and it seems obvious when you read it, but I hadn't really understood it prior. And it's actually just reinterpreting or redefining what racism is. So many of us mm. think of racism as prejudice. We know what racism looks like if someone has a public transport incident or whatever. But your definition of racism is slightly different to that. How do you define racism in the book? It's prejudice plus power. That is what I understand racism to be. Sometimes people be like, oh, well, you know, human beings, they're just tribal. Everyone's prejudiced, really. Oh, there's nothing we can do about this. Let's just go home. Mm. Um, but the fact of the matter is that Yes, we all may at some hold some level of racial prejudice, but unless you are systematically, or people of your race are systematically in the position to be able to let that prejudice negatively affect other people's life chances, that it doesn't hold much water. And so, you know, because I am a journalist and I, I, do, I am party to interpreting information 
Um, and so I, that's what I've attempted to do in the book. What I did was just look at the big picture sort of data in terms of race and life chances in Britain. And mm. there was, the results were essentially devastating, and, but not particularly surprising because these crop up in the news media, you know, every few months. You know, I found that a black boy was three times as likely as his white counterparts to be excluded from school. I found that um, when it comes to year six exams, the ones that get you into secondary school, black children were being systematically undermarked by their own teachers mm. of any race. And that was something that, was, that would be rectified by anonymous marking. When it comes to the job market, people with African and Asian-sounding names alongside um, people with white British-sounding names um, who all had like, similar qualifications and experience were far less likely to be called to interview um, when it when you know they're both applying for the same job hmm. than people with white british sounding names so repeatedly again and again and again you know i also found similar dynamics in healthcare and housing repeatedly again and again and again i saw how the prejudice was inbuilt into the system there was a structural discrimination going on there hmm. and what i wasn't saying in the book was that that means that the job market and our schools have been infiltrated by white supremacists what i was saying was that there it's a dominant ideology that is at play here that is putting these people, you know, making these people's success less likely, negatively impacting these people's life chances. And when I'm talking about this, I'm not particularly saying that, so if you're not white, you're destined to never succeed, and if you're white, you will absolutely succeed. What I am saying is that it's more or less likely, and that actually, if you're not white in that context of systematic disadvantage, the odds are stacked against you. Now, you can still succeed, but you'd be probably succeeding against the odds, which means that if you do succeed, you're probably better than your white counterparts. <laughs> <laughs> that is an enormously complex and, I imagine, confronting conversation to have for a lot of people because the people who feel that they are able to identify prejudice and racism are... To, to make them come to an understanding, essentially, that the foundations that society is built on is racist is a very difficult thing to process, I imagine. Mm. Mm. Well, I just don't understand why it's that difficult. I suppose yeah. people are very like, people are very like, stuck on this idea of meritocracy and fair play, and that everybody's got an equal chance, and everyone's got a fair chance to uh, thrive and, and survive. But the facts keep showing, and repeatedly, again and again, it's not true. I think, particularly in the context of Australia, we see again and again that it's not true. I feel like perhaps the context in this country is even more stark than Britain. You know, I'm living in the in the country of a colonizer right now. Like mm. maybe Britain was like, um, Britain ruled Nigeria, which is my heritage, until the 60s, but never attempted never attempted to just like move everybody out or like attempted mm. a genocide in uh, Nigeria but in Australia that actually happened and so to me the talk of meritocracy in this context that's willful ignorance that is i that is ideological mm. and i i'm very shocked and disturbed to to know that um that's why i think that if you look at, at whiteness as a political ideology in the long term you start to become very concerned and worried about, about how it continues to maintain itself. And, and now I feel there's a dominant ideology that um, attempts to say, well, these people are not succeeding because they deserve it. Mm. So now the, co the conversation is less, OK, yeah, yeah, that happened, but these people are not succeeding because they deserve it and they're sort of lesser in some way. Mm. And, and I think if you are a critical anti-racist, 
it's your job to repeatedly challenge that because that is how, that's how these things continue to thrive. Like I was talking to another writer the other day and she was saying, you know, she feels a bit, she's a historical fiction writer. She said she feels a bit like she can sort of understand now why in Nazi Germany there was concentration camps and nobody was going to demonstrate outside them every day because there was an ideology that said, well, those people deserve to be there. Mm. And to me, that is what racism is. The, ideolo the ideology that says those people deserve to be there, so just carry on with your day-to-day -day life. But also in, implicit in that ideology is, well, you should know your place mm. as well. And I find like that kind of comes up often when you're, when you're having these conversations, which is like, well, we can't be that racist because obviously you've got a book out mm. and we're having this conversation on stage at the moment. Like That mm. happens quite a bit. And another thing that often comes up, you write about this in your book, is that people quote Martin Luther King to you mm. as, if, as if you're the one uh, bringing up race and making race problematic. Mm. Um, how, I mean, look, there's, there's this great section from Martin Luther King that, that you quote in the book that I've mm. never read before, and I kind of got chills when I read it. Do you mind if I read it out? Go ahead. I've been greatly disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counsellor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who paternalistically feels he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Why was it important for you to include that in your book, and how does that resonate with the conversations you have? To me, when I first read that passage, um, it was hugely comforting to know that somebody else had felt that <laughs> long, long, long before I was born. Um, I think that sometimes you feel a little bit more comfortable with the far right because you know where you stand with them. But like white progressives and white people on the left who are like, oh no, look, you're being a bit divisive. This is a broad like, agenda that we're all working to. So if you could just stop talking about race for a bit, like we'll get to that later. Like to me, that's far more frustrating. Mm. And you're right, in terms of what you raised a little bit earlier, I do sometimes get people saying, well, Rennie, you're successful. So really, why are you complaining about all of these things? You're fine. And I say... Therefore, racism doesn't exist. Exactly. Um, kind of like that black president argument that people have heard <laughs> on about. Yeah, we live in a post-racial society yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I always say to that, I'm not saying... What I'm not saying in my analysis is that somebody like me could never succeed. But now, one thing I have noticed is that the more successful I've become, the whiter the rooms are, mm. okay? And the, more, the fewer of people like me are, you know? So I look what, what, around... What's, I, what's your theory behind that? What's going on? Well, I think that it speaks to the the system at hand. I really do. I think that it speaks to the system at hand. You mean as, so you're becoming me. more, yeah. as you're becoming more successful mm -hmm. as well and heard and given bigger platforms mm -hmm. as well, that the people who have access to those platforms are a particular demographic? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I feel like in Britain, you can't walk down TV studios without tripping over a middle-aged white man, <laughs> a commentator. They're a fire you know? hazard, Exactly, yes. they are. <laughs> you know, you, you, they're everywhere, but they're so few black women, let alone young black women, doing mm. this work. And so, and, that, and I say that speaks to the dynamics I'm talking about in the book. Um, and at no point in sort of doing this work have I said, 
I need money to live, so, you know, that, uh, that's why I'm bothering ab about making this, this case, because me, 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 I, 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 self, self, self. Like, it's not actually about me, mm. you know? It's not about me as an individual. I'm trying to call attention to some of these, like, negative, dominant ideologies. But also, you know, the other thing, talking about race makes racism worse, or, you know, you're race-obsessed, or, you know, if you just talk about it, it'll go away which seems to be a particularly interesting topic, and I suppose that's one that, that's an argument that comes from people who don't have race forced upon them. Mm. Because I feel like if you're not white, because whiteness is considered to be neutral and objective, and everybody else's race is measured against it, so if you're not white, um, even if you don't share the same political position as me, you will have, at points in your life, have people race you. Mm. And um, I keep telling this anecdote that, you know, I was in a airport in Australia with my British passport, checking in for my flight, and uh, the white woman behind the counter checks me in, sees my British passport, and then she looks up at me and she smiles and she said, so where are you from? She's so, literally got your passport. <laughs> exactly. And I think that that is a really good example of how, even if I didn't ever want to think about race, even if I personally thought myself talking about race is the problem, which I don't think it is, actually. I think racism is the problem, but that's by the by. Even if I didn't think that, um, here again, we're having social dynamics, and this person was in a relative position of power to me, like, I need to get the flight, and she's in the way, like, she's the person who's going to grant me permission, right? So I couldn't, I couldn't be rude. But here again, we have that dynamic of, I'm being raced again. I'm being asked, where are you from? Why are you black? You know, mm. you've just looked at my passport. It says birthplace, London, United Kingdom. You know, so that, that dynamic is pushed upon me it, outside of my will. And that's what I talk about a lot in this work. Like, many of us are racialized outside of our will. White people walk, get to walk around being like autonomous, individual, free-thinking beings, but because of this dominant ideology, if you're not white, you're seen as part of an anthropomorphic, like a nebulous mass, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, all homogenous, everyone thinks the same, you know, and I think that that's, we need to, we need to continue to challenge that. It must be so relaxing and picturesque not to have to think of race. Well, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, so anybody who says, oh, you're thinking about race too much and whatnot, I'm like, well, Bully for you, you know, like... I didn't know it was a choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess if you, if you don't have to think about it, then that's white privilege. When we're talking about our, our allies or potential allies or people who should be allies, you think of, um, you know, the conversation around feminism, for instance, but you also write about how, especially your early experiences of feminism, ended up becoming deeply frustrating because of the conversations that weren't being had. What, weren't the, what were the conversations that were absent in those feminist spaces? Well, it's not that they were absent. It's, uh, they were initially absent. I would... I, along with other women who were black in feminist spaces, would attempt to have those conversations. And the result uh, led me to write the opening essay of the book. Hmm. Um, my time in feminism was trash, let's be real. Like, it was awful. Um, what about it? What happened? So, I was being called upon as a token a lot of the time. Um, and I was also finding myself alongside white women who were like, yeah, you know, patriarchy, really bad, let's bring it down, all women, we're working together, everything's great, hold hands. Um, but what they weren't particularly good at was understanding how race was a, like, power dynamic in the same way that gender was, or, mm. you know, patriarchy is what they were calling it. So what they... 
whenever you would try to talk about these things, they would become very upset and very offended and say, you're calling me racist, but mm. I'm a good person, you know? And there was so much tiptoeing around their feelings. But I think now I understand that to be utterly predictable in a white-dominated movement, utterly predictable, because feminism that isn't critical of what race means in our society is just um, the feminist wing of a white-dominated political consensus in general. Mm. There's, a, there's an interesting conversation going on in Sydney in the performing arts space at the moment. There is uh, a theatre troupe that's putting on an all-female production of As You Like It, and they announced their cast the other day because this is a new thing, you know, all-female all female Shakespeare. The cast was entirely white, and um, when it was called to their attention and criticised, they said, we did the best that we could. Um, we, we, we went out there and we, we tried getting people, or we didn't get enough applicants who were diverse, and what are we supposed to do about that? Um, and then other people chimed in and said, well, obviously the best actors got the role. So how, how do we start having that conversation? And I guess it's also a conversation about uh, the institutional mechanisms we introduce to address institutional racism are mm. seen as tokenistic, or unfair, that it creates an unequal playing ground. Mm. What, what are we meant to, well, to say in all of this? Any discussion of that, I mean, it's again a willful ignorance, a uh, like narrow, like blinkered way of not seeing the existing unequal playing ground. So, you know, you know I, I'm not opposed to positive discrimination initiatives. I understand the need for them because they level an existing unequal playing ground. Mm. And some people are upset about those things because they're like, oh, no, it's unfair, special treatment. And the point is that some people have been receiving special treatment for hundreds of years. <laughs> OK, so it's just um, much more informal. Mm. I mean, in terms of this theatre troupe, I can't speak um, with any particular expertise about what's going on um, but uh, because I haven't really been paying attention. But... What I can tell you is that I probably wouldn't go to see it and I would advise you not to <laughs> How Look, I'm not sure um, if you'd have the answer for this, but how have we kind of reached a point where it seems that being called a racist is more offensive than racism itself. For instance, in the national conversation here at the moment, our Attorney General, George Brandis, is one of the chief, chief prosecutors in amending the Racial Discrimination Act. One of his arguments is that everyone has a right to be a bigot. When he's called an old white man, as he has been repeatedly, um, he brings that up in the Senate as one of the most disagreeable, offensive, horrible things. Whereas I think, you know, pejoratives aside, objectively, he's old and white and, and, and a man. Mm. So, so, why, so why have we reached Maybe this point? Maybe he thinks he's, he sees himself as young and hunky. Maybe no, that's no. it. He he's got something like reverse body dysmorphia. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> He needs a better moisturising regime, yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, he thinks he's very <laughs> But it sounds like there are, there are resonances there with, with what's going on in the UK as mm. well, that to be called prejudiced or racist is the most mortally offensive thing rather than racism. Mm. What, how did we get to that point? I think it speaks to what I wrote about in that opening essay, which is that the conversation about racism is primarily focused on white people's feelings. Mm. Um, and so everyone's got to dance, tiptoe around white people's feelings, be very careful, because if you offend white people, that's it, it's over. And, and, and what does it actually mean to offend white people? Well, if you call into attention their complicity in the existing status quo, they get very upset. Um, if white, you... white people also seem to be offended to be referred to as white people, yes, yes. I find. So like, if, you call, if you describe white people as 
a racial group, which, by the way, if you're not white, you're very used to being described as a racial group. But if, you, if white people are on the receiving end of that because they consider themselves to be neutral, objective, and free-thinking, they get very upset. So there's a lot of ways to upset white people in this conversation. And I, and I do think that sometimes some white people are only comfortable if the conversation doesn't exist, mm. which is why... I, I've just got to discard them at this point. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. I did an event and um, one woman put her hand up and she's like, look, I'm South African, like, I'm really like, anti-racist, and she was a white woman. I'm really anti-racist, like, I really care, I support your work, it's all really important. I'm not quoting her verbatim. <laughs> but, um, and then she was like, but this term white privilege, it's got to go, it's shutting people down, like, it's upsetting people, it's really like blocking the conversation. Mm. And I just responded to her saying, like, I'm yet to find any term that discusses the way that white people benefit from racism that white people are happy with. Mm. To the extent that I'm not sure if I should keep running it by you guys. Like, I'm not sure if, like... <laughs> I think I'm just not going to do that, actually. Yes. Yeah. Can I just also point out, we will take questions later on, but white privilege is also just giving us a comment and not a question. So, um, for, for part of the book... You don't just... I mean, even though it's titled Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, you do talk to white people for the book. Yes. Um, one of the people There's that... just no way to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> one of the people you talk to is someone that I think anyone reading the book would probably decide is a, is a white supremacist. Um, who is Nick Griffin and why did you want to talk to him? So he is a former leader of the British National Party, basically a far-right white supremacist political party in Britain, I think pretty much dissolved now. But I spoke to him for the book because while I was writing this book, um, we had a campaign to leave the EU. And in that campaign to leave the EU was some of the, was some of the most insidious white nationalism. Um, it was particularly awful. There was talk of anchor babies. There was talk of migrant women... What, what is an anchor baby? I'll explain. Migrant women moving to the UK, having their children in British hospitals to make their kids British citizens. Wow. Um, talk of, you know, a population the size of X country that has moved to Britain at this point and it's destroying the fabric of society. Um, it was particularly troubling. Um, and, you know, I also know that the Leave EU official Leave EU Twitter account started coming out in support of Marine Le Pen in France. And, you know, there was a comment... That conversation appeared to start out about sovereignty, and then it devolved, frankly, into some of the most flagrant, obvious, like, white nationalism in British politics that I'd seen in a while. But, of course, you couldn't say that that was racist because mm. then white people get very upset. And to this day, you still get people go, look, I hate it that Brexiters are being called racist because that really upsets us. Um, now, I can't second-guess why every single person who voted Brexit voted why they did. I don't know. I can, but I can comment on the explicit racism of that campaign. Mm. And what I also saw in that campaign was clear echoes of what Nick Griffin was saying in the political sphere about 10 or 15 years prior. Uh, but when he was saying those things in the political sphere, it was being roundly condemned. You know, at the time, he had a Labour government. Everyone was like, yeah, we love multiculturalism, it's great. And so in that context, it was being roundly condemned as utterly hateful nonsense. But it, it, it crept back into the public sphere. And what I really wanted to do with that interview with him was situate that conversation back at its roots. Mm. Right? I wanted people to understand 
this is what you are cheering on when you're talking about legitimate concerns. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of that in, in that sort of in that election discussion, in that referendum discussion, legitimate concerns. But also it, it struck me that racism has become so codified now. Like when we're mm. talking about, um, you know, the equivalent of that would be um, parties like One Nation here talking about the erosion of Australian culture, the erosion of British culture. I mean, to start off with, what are they talking about in the first place? Mm. You know, what is Australian culture in the first place? Mm. And underneath that is all this subtext, right, that is about explicitly race. I mean, to, we've arrived at this point, it seems, that we, we, we bury it under all of this code. Mm. I mean, are we equipped to decode it? I think that if you come from a critical anti-racist position, which I think is not reified knowledge people, I think anyone can do it. So please don't look to me like I am the solution <laughs> woman. Um, I think that if you look at it from a critical anti-racist position, yes, you can. Um, I think the reason why this this like more overt racism is becoming more codified is because if, one, if there's one thing that anti-racist campaigners won was making overt racism socially stigmatized. Mm. So like you see this like rise of the alt-right and the Nazis and part, part of what they're rebelling against is the social stigma around their politics, um, which I suppose would be uh, somewhat, would have some currency, but the fact of the matter is um, the status quo sort of backs up white supremacy anyway, so I don't know, it's not particularly revolutionary what they're attempting to try and do. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that we have, to be, we have to be constant about it. We can't be complacent when we see these more codified um, discussions about race, because what I found in the British political sphere is that race was being discussed all the time. Now, it was white people discussing it, and there would never usually be anybody non-white at the table, or if they were, they would be called upon as a representative of their race. Mm. So can you please give us the, the you know, perspective of your people? Um, <laughs> but they would talk about race all the time, and, but it would be in, the, in a way of talking about their anxieties, about, you know, white anxieties, white fear. There's a chapter in the book called Fear of a Black Planet that, that discusses all of this, about how... Um, in that fear, I believe, as a, they believe, they're starting to believe that they're going to become the new minority. And mm. um, in that is a paradox, you know, first, first they're saying racism doesn't exist, but at the same time they're worried about becoming a new minority. Is it because you think the minorities are being treated in a discriminatory way? Because if that's the case, then <laughs> you kind of understand that racism exists. So, like, they're, <laughs> they're holding a lot of weird paradoxes in their head. Um, mm. And they're discussing it a lot in the public sphere. Uh, but they never actually use the R word. They never actually use race or racism. Hmm. Um, they might talk about their culture, which, again, really interesting to be discussing culture, particularly Australian culture, in the context of this country. Yes, mm. yes. Um, really we might raise the lights up at this point. Um, if you have questions, and we really hope that you do, you'll see that there are two microphones. There's one here and there's one there. So if you have a question, start um, lining up now, because if you... Don't be shy, because then you won't get your question heard. But we specifically, one, encourage questions rather than comments. And we also... If you have comments, just uh, take them home, discuss it with your family. <laughs> 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 uh, 
And beyond that, we'd also like to specifically hear from people who have been negatively affected by the, some of the issues that we've been speaking about today as well. Mm. Um, just before we start taking questions, you do talks with young people as well, right? Like kids. Yeah, well, not always, but I was explicitly asked by one teenager to go to her school, and so I went along. Yeah. What was that experience like, and how do kids react to the, these discussions that you're having? Well, honestly, it was so great. I must say, the most belligerent person in that class was their teacher. Wow. <laughs> yeah, like, the teenagers were brilliant, mm -hmm. really great. Um, How was the teacher belligerent? Oh, gosh, she was like, oh, what, we're really making the issue worse by discussing this, you know? That's, that's what I, she... And I don't want to racially profile the teacher. Oh, I'll have, a, I'll have that discussion with you, you later on. You can make a guess. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we take a question from microphone one, and then we'll go to two. Yes. Hi, thank you very much. I really enjoyed the, this discussion. Thanks for coming. Um, so, I'm Indian. I've been lucky enough to live in Australia for a few years. I'm really enjoying it. I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways. And I can see instances where I think systems are unequal or I feel like there is racism evident. But I'm cautious about talking about it because, quite frankly, the stereotype of the angry Indian woman as well now. And what are ways to constructively engage with this sort of dominant ideology? Like, what are, what are things you can actually do in your daily life to make a difference? Hmm. I mean, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask about that. <laughs> <laughs> Given the title. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um... what, what about that question of, you know, it's hard to have a conversation because then you'll be construed as mm. the angry Indian woman, the, the angry black woman, you know, those kind of things that are thrown back at you, like mm. you're the cause of the problem. Is there a way to neutralise that at all? I'm not sure. I, I do first strongly suggest that you don't get too caught up in what other people think of you um, because that can absolutely sort of uh, hinder how, what you really want to say. Um, sometimes if you feel that you're not able to really have those conversations with your friends or colleagues, perhaps challenge, challenge it, no, I can't even speak now, uh, channeling it into more creative endeavours. Um, I think that's, that's definitely something I did, which definitely led to the creation of this book as well. Um, you know, finding constructive ways that doesn't necessarily mean going into a room and being argumentative, because don't get me wrong, like, I'm not an argumentative person by any means. Um, and part of the reason why, you know, I do the work that I do is so that I don't have to have daily arguments with people. And so, but I also don't want to be particularly prescriptive because I don't know, you know, where your spheres of influence are, like where you work, what your networks are like, how you can channel it or, you know, find a, maybe find a support network amongst people who are also affected. Um, yeah, I don't know. I hope that helps. Hmm. <laughs> Thank you for your question. We'll take another question over here from microphone two. Hi. Thank you for your talk. Um, I have a lot of white friends and have had a lot of white partners that I have really great conversations with around politics and feminism. But when I bring up race, they ear shut and they don't want to talk about it, or they don't, it's almost like they don't believe that I'm Asian and that I have lived experience of racism. Do they think you're Latino, or...? Well, <laughs> no, so yeah, you're one the, of us. Yeah, <laughs> one yeah. of us. Um, no, but to the point where I've kind of gone, if you want me to be white, I can be white, and I've stopped linking them to articles. I couldn't get anyone to read your, you know, excerpt in The Guardian, for example. They wouldn't even click on it. I just got yeah, silenced. they're probably scared. Yeah, well... Or, or, I, scared of what just, they might reveal, what yeah, it might reveal it's, to it's them. It's the angry person of colour thing again. Mm. They're like, oh, Jay's on a racial rant again. You know, I don't need to click on that. But I guess my question is, 
if I only speak to people who want to listen to it, how do we prevent ourselves from having these discussions in an echo chamber or preaching mm. to the converted? Well, again, I, I would have to dispute that because you wouldn't believe how many people flock to you when you say, OK, I won't talk to you about this then. You're obviously not interested. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know? It's the old classic reverse psychology parent move. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so uh, I think it would... You know, again, I would say find a support network. Uh, you know, I think that's hugely important. I wouldn't be able to do the work that I'm doing now if I didn't have a support network. Um, but, yeah, I suppose I, I don't believe in speaking to brick walls. I don't. I believe that if people are going to, you know, be nasty and mock you or say that, well, you're just angry or you've got a chip on your shoulder, that you shouldn't attempt to try and convince them. Um, and... I don't know. I, I feel like a little bit like saying get new friends, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, more, <laughs> but, but more broadly, I think that, again, I would strongly recommend... <laughs> OK, good, 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 good. <laughs> Just, uh, you know, look after yourself, self-care, find a support network channel into creative endeavours, and people will listen to you, actually. I think that... Um, I'm, I'm not so convinced by this idea of echo chamber. I mean, because there are some people who are utterly ideological and, and don't want to entertain the, the idea at all, but I know that once I press po post on that blog post, once I publish, an awful lot of people who were perhaps very, very committed to not believing me, you know, stumbled across that same, same Guardian piece and then got in touch and be like, oh, you, you've got me questioning myself. Hmm. Thank you so much for your question. We're going to stick with microphone two before we hop back to microphone one. Hello. Hello. Um, so I found that just being black in an American context or just be, or being a person of color can be anywhere from emotionally traumatizing to just kind of emotionally exhausting. It's usually on that spectrum from things as little as like, oh, you sound so eloquent for a black girl to, oh, hey, guess what? Your, your white friend's like, oh, hey, guess what? I just hooked up with a black guy. To what's, things like what's Charlottesville. What's that got to do with you? Yeah, like, or the, <laughs> or the things like Charlottesville. Or like Charlottesville, which was very violent and just, uh, just traumatizing and terrifying. And then you're like, well, I need someone to talk to you. And your white friend's like, well, I can't believe that just happened. Like, that's not America. And you're like, well... Now I'm just tired. Like, I'm scared and I'm frightened and I'm tired. So I just, other than disengaging from the conversation, kind of what are your best practices for self-care in these kinds of environments? Um, so I suppose one thing that I, I must reiterate is that, you know, it's about withdrawing to recharge. And so, you know, it would be facetious for me to tell, tell this audience now that I, I'm not talking to white people about race because I've just globally published a book, so I'm going around talking to people. And what I did at that moment in time when I published that blog post was I was withdrawing and for my own... I needed to look after myself. I was also emotionally exhausted. And I think that that's OK. I think when people are attempting to sort of bait you into um, ill-willed discussions or debate, it's OK to say no. I think that actually what happens is that we feel that we have to respond. 
We feel that we have to respond because we care about this, and nobody else in our immediate vicinity cares. And so if we don't respond, the injustice is going to keep happening. But actually, I actually think that there's always going to be somebody out there who's, who's got it, who's, who's got the baton, even if you haven't actually physically passed it to them. Um, and that you, sh that you should, don't always need to feel drawn into discussions that perhaps you're not comfortable with because you're being looked at as a representative of your race or um, you're just emotionally exhausted about because someone's saying to you, well, prove to me this exists. Um, and so, again, I, my answer's got to be similar to the, the last two uh, answers that I just gave in terms of, I think looking after yourself is really important, but primarily attempt to try and have that conversation with, with the truth at hand. I don't think that anybody has to feel coerced into dealing with a very, very biased agenda. I hope that helps. Mm. Thank Thanks. you so much for your question. Um, over at microphone one. Hello. Um, my question was going to be about self-care as well, but it seems like it's um, a it's very... It's the theme a, of the day. It's the theme of the day. It's the theme of our lives, really. <laughs> <laughs> Next to racism is self-care. Uh, but so I'll, I'll, I'll... I just thought of another question. So... Um, <laughs> So, thinking on the fly here, improv. Uh, I, ha I wanted to sort of get your opinion around uh, sort of being the diplomatic, pleasant person of colour, bringing up the issue um, versus being the one that just, wants, that just smacks people in the head. Like, you know, the, I have to do that day to day in the work that I do. Um, and sort of you go, oh, let me tell you about why it's great not to be racist. Mm. Um, uh, let me tell you why it's really great for, you know, commercial television to show some diversity because, you know, it'll make you some extra money. Um, and then other times I'll just go, you're being a f-wit. Um, and so what do you, I, I want to know about it's your experience. Have you experienced those juxtaposing sort of scenarios? Which do you feel more comfortable with? as well? Hmm. I suppose I have, yes. So an interesting thing happened, which is that like, as soon as I wrote a book and the book came out, suddenly people started taking me more seriously. But I, I was going for many years with no book behind me, and I was absolutely in those places in which I would try and call attention to those things. And I don't have a happy ending for you. Unfortunately, it was horrible. Mm. <laughs> uh, Unfortunately, it led me to write that blog post. Like, <laughs> it was uh, very unpleasant. Um, I heard a theory once. I can't remember who told me, but they said the critical mass is three. So if you've got three people coming from the same perspective in the room, people start to actually believe it, believe that it's legitimate. Mm. So uh, maybe find some pals in that room. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for your question. And we'll go back to Mike too. Hi. Um, thanks for that quote on the white moderate. It just really brings to life my day-to-day. -day. I work in the not-for-profit sector, and I'm lucky enough to engage with many white moderates all the time. And um, I think it's this really peculiar scenario of people that have the language to really talk about it. They've potentially read your book, and they really know what to say. But um, going to the points that you, that you raise in your book, they're not willing to make any personal sacrifices, whether it's reputationally or to their career, to actually 
progress the cause of being against race um, within an organisational context or broader. So in terms of actual strategies, like, and I mean, that's a great one, like get some pals and try and have some conversations. But what I find really fascinating is that I have close white friends who I work with on a day-to-day -day basis and they, they get it, they get it, like, but they're the, they're the exception that like gets it, but they're not gonna do anything to harm themselves in the process. So it's mm. this weird Why thing. Don't, I suppose my thing is, it'd be really good if like white people who get it could talk to other white people who don't. Yeah. That would be really good. Because yes. like, I feel like it would take a lot of load off a lot of people's backs. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I feel like if you're a white person in the audience who really gets it, like, Start engaging with yeah. other white people because if you if you're worried about that conversation, God, imagine how she feels. Like it's not it's not fun. But at least you have you. Are, I think actually a white person who gets it has less to lose in that context. Mm. Mm -hmm. Thank, you. Thank you so much for your question. Um, we'll hop back to microphone one. Hi, uh, my name is Jaime Enriquez, and I am from Mexico City. Uh, my question comes because uh, I am a child of a family of mixed origins. Mm. So my, my mom is white and my dad is Mexican from the north of Mexico. Mm. So on Christmas, I saw, on Christmas and New Year's, I saw the two different families, you know, had mm. dinner with one and then the other. And you clearly see the, the very different conversations. Mm. I saw the excitement. Many of my family from the north of Mexico have a, <laughs> illegal, some, some of them are illegal immigrants in the U.S. and they've been there for a long time. And I saw the, excit the excitement that came to them with Barack Obama coming in and the promise of an immigration reform that never came. Mm. And uh, so there was this excitement about winning ground. And it suddenly started with Donald Trump making derogatory comments. And in a blink, he's president. And so it felt like the rug got pulled from their feet. And now the ground that they thought they had won was actually not won at all. So my question is, how can we make sure that the ground we win, we really won? Mm. And what are the signs? How can we make sure that it's there? Yeah, mm. absolutely. I mean, my answer to that is complacency kills. And so I think that it's really, you know, every day is a, is a day to hold the ground. And I think that there was an awful lot of, you know, I don't love talking about America that much, but I do think there was an awful lot of uh, celebration, understandable, after Barack Obama's election, and then also a lot of complacency. We did it, everyone. Great. Well, let's all just pack up and go home now. And I think that that was the absolute wrong, the wrong strategy. Um, because I think that what happens with you know, the election with, of a far-right demagogue, uh, Donald Trump is not the only one, is, um, but he certainly plays on a, an existing white victim mentality, which is a, not only a resistance to any conversation about race and a denial that racism exists, um, but then a almost allergic reaction to that conversation about race and a, start, and a belief that white people are actually the victims in this, in this context. And I think that as soon as we start to see the kernels of that, I mean, it's too late now, the horse is bolted, but when we did start to see the kernels of that, we should have absolutely caught it out for what it is. Um, and I do worry that I think that those of us who consider ourselves to be progressive have been complacent uh, on progress because I think we particularly see it um, in the UK and the US with reproductive rights. Mm. That's consistently under attack. Similarly, immigration rights consistently under attack. There is no 
there's unfortunately no rest days. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do self-care. It just means that we should all be vigilant and uh, take it in turns to defend those rights. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so sorry to the people at the mics, but unfortunately we've run out of time and we have to end the conversation there. But the conversation should and can continue outside of this room as well, especially when you buy a copy of Rennie's book outside. It is Father's Day. It would make a fantastic gift, especially if you have a white nationalist father. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but could you please join me in thanking our wonderful guest today, Rennie Edo Lodge. That was Rennie Edo-Lodge talking self-care and how we can all help dismantle power structures. Why not take her advice and forward this on to a friend or that white supremacist uncle who needs to hear it? Next week on the podcast, it's the final talk from Antidote Festival and the one and only Janet Mock, noted feminist, writer and transgender activist. See you next week, podcast listeners.